0: as you know, in the book of John, we've been walking through these different texts, and the main theme, of course, that John is trying to portray, he tells us in John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. That's John's goal. That's his heart. His heart is that people will see in the written page who Jesus is, that He's God the Son. He truly is the Messiah that was spoken about in the Old Testament. And then when seeing that and understanding that, that they'll come to faith, that they'll be born again, that they'll be part of God's kingdom. This is His goal. And every chapter that's been highlighted, Jesus is God the Son. And we saw last time that Jesus healed a man in Bethesda by the pool And when Jesus did that, that proved that He truly was the Lord of the Sabbath. And when the Jewish leaders, they confronted Jesus for this healing of the Sabbath, Jesus said this in verse 17 of John chapter 5. He says, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. When Jesus said, My Father, these religious leaders understood that He made a claim of equality to God. They understood that He said He had the very nature, the same nature as the Father. And so the religious leaders at that point, they were upset because they felt He was breaking the Sabbath, but then they went on to understand, they said that He was committing blasphemy. Look at verse 18, it says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God His own Father, making Himself equal to God. Now we saw that last week, Now, today we're going to start in verse 19, and Jesus himself is going to give a long discourse, basically explaining from verses 19 to 47 that he truly is God the Son. And the heart and the soul of the Christian faith and the gospel, we must have a right view of who Jesus is. Some people say that Jesus was a good man. Other people say that Jesus was a prophet. Some might even say that He was a noble man. But you must believe that He is not only the Son of God, but He's God the Son. And He says it very clearly in this text. Let's read it. We're going to start with verses 19 through 24. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He who has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father." He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but he's passed out of death to life. If you've come in this morning and you've been doubting who Jesus really is, maybe you've been brought by a friend, maybe you've been attending for a while, but there's still questions in your mind or in your heart Who is really Jesus? Jesus right now makes very strong and compelling statements. There's no wiggle room here. He's going to prove by the very statements of what he says that he claims to be God. So what claims did Jesus make about himself? The first thing we see is that Jesus claimed to be equal with God. Right here in this section, Jesus claims to be equal with God. A lot of people want to say that Jesus is just a normal man that he's just some historical figure that showed up, that maybe even he was a little crazy. But Jesus says that he's equal with the Father. It says, therefore, Jesus, he, he, he does nothing of himself, he says in verse 19. If Jesus was not God, he would have emphatically have denied the accusation that the leaders brought against him. But instead of denying it, he's going to set out in this section to prove it that He truly is God the Son. Look at verse 19 again. It says, truly, truly. That's for emphasis. That's saying, hey, listen up. Hear what I say. I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. Jesus is saying, hey, listen up. This is true. And he's, what He's doing here is defending the healing that He just did on the Sabbath. And He ties all His activities directly back to His heavenly Father. Jesus always acted in perfect harmony, in perfect unity with the Father. In John 6, 38, He says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And we need to understand in the three and a half years that Jesus did His ministry, Jesus accepted without correction the titles as the Son of God and also as the Son of Man. Both of these are messianic titles. Both of these say that he's the Messiah, that he is the king. But he also took for himself the name of God. He applied it to himself. It is the great I am statement. It's called a tetragrammaton, And he said this over and over again. Jesus said in John eight fifty eight, truly, truly, there again for emphasis, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And therefore, the leaders that heard this, they wanted to stone him. Why would they want to kill Jesus? Because there again... He claimed to be God. These leaders understood that Jesus had made the very claim to have the same nature as His Father, the nature as God. He not only claims to be equal to God in nature, but we're going to see here in verse 19, He also makes the claim to be equal in works. The first thing we see in this section is that Jesus makes the claim that He's equal to God in the works that He did. He says, whatever the Father does, the Son does in like manner. Where some people are saying, well, Jesus is just trying to emulate the Father. No, that's not what He's doing right here. He's saying that everything that I do is in complete harmony and unity of exactly what the Father does. Chuck Swindoll put it like this. He says, the Son is the perfect revelation of the Father here on earth in human form. Everything He does reflects the intentions and actions of the Father, Moreover, what the Father knows, the Son knows, because they are one being. And then, right here in verse twenty, Jesus describes his relationship with the Father. He calls, it, he describes it as a union of love. Look at the text. He says, "For the Father loves the Son, and He shows him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel." Now, it's interesting that word love there, I would think it would be akapaheo, which is the the term that we would call the love of will or of choice, but instead he uses the term phileo, which is deep affection, deep affection and, and warm feelings for the son. And this is the only time in the New Testament that the father uses that term phileo when he refers to his love for the son. Basically, what he's saying is that Jesus has always known the love of the father. Jesus has always known the will of the Father. Everything, and I mean everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus said, is equal to the Father and is complete harmony with His will. Verse twenty says that the Father will show Jesus all things that He Himself was doing. This means that that healing act that Jesus did by the pool of the Bethesda was the healing act because it was the Father's will. Jesus did it in harmony with the Father. And then He says that the Father will show Him greater works so that you will marvel. And we know that there were many more greater works that Jesus did. As a matter of fact, we know that Jesus is going to heal many people from demon possession. And that proves that He's equal to the Father in the supernatural. Jesus also is going to calm a raging sea, showing that He's equal to God in the natural realm. In addition, he's going to feed the 4,000. He's going to feed the 5,000, showing that he has the ability to create something out of nothing. Again, showing the equality with God. Jesus is equal to God in works. And not only is he equal to God in works, he's also equal to God in power. God is omnipotent, but Jesus Christ is also omnipotent. Look at verse 21. He says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Jesus, as God, has the power to give or to take life. Now, in the Old Testament, it says only God has that power. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, it says, See now that I am He, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death. It is I who... Who gives life. In 1 Samuel 2.6, the Lord says the Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and the Lord raises up. And we know as the ministry of Jesus progressed that He raised a number of people from the dead. He raised the widow nun's son from the dead. He raised His closest friend, Lazarus, From the grave. If you remember the story, Lazarus had been in the grave for four full days. If you remember, I can't remember who it was, but they said that he stinketh, right? And so he'd been dead four days, and Jesus shows up outside this tomb and he has them roll away the stone, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes forth still wrapped in the grave clothes. And Jesus says to them, Unbind him and let him go. So he has the power to raise the dead, showing that he is equal with God. And not only does he have the power to raise those who are physically dead, he has the power to raise those who are spiritually dead, those who do not know him, those who are not born again. Right before he raised Lazarus from the dead, he's speaking to his sister Martha. Listen to his words in John eleven twenty five 25, and 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. He proved that he was equal to God in nature, in works, and also in power. And not only that, he also proves that he's equal to God in judgment. In judgment. Look at verse 22. He says, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son Now, the Father has given all judgment to the Son, and we know in Jesus' first coming that He did not come as a judge, but He came as a Savior. John 3.17 makes that clear. It says, For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. But Jesus has the authority to grant spiritual life, and He also has the authority to judge all men. And only God can decide the fate of humanity. That is because He is sovereign, and God has given that sovereign act over to His Son. He has delegated that sovereign act of judgment to the Son. We know that in John three eighteen it says, He who believes in Him, that is Jesus, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And the fact that the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, it further attests to Jesus' deity. What he's saying here is that every decision that Jesus makes is in complete harmony to exactly the way the Father would make it. And when Jesus returns in his second coming, he's coming as a judge. Speaking to those who were suffering in Thessalonica, this is the way Paul the Apostle put it. He says, "'For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels with flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" When Jesus returns, He's going to return with His mighty angels and flaming fire. Why? As a judge. And He's going to judge everyone rightly. Right now, you have an opportunity to know Christ as a Redeemer, as a Savior, as a friend. But one day, if you will not receive Him, you will face Him as a judge. You do not want to face the Lord as a judge. Receive Him today as a Savior. The Father delegated all judgment to the Son. So this equality with God. Jesus here right now has claimed that He's equal to God in nature, in works, in power, in judgment. And then He says one last one, honor. Jesus is equal to God in honor. Jesus deserves all honor and praise just as the Father does. Look at verses 23 and 24. It says, so that all honor so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and he does not come into judgment, but he's passed out of death to life. Again, for emphasis, Jesus says here, truly, truly, and what he says here, he doesn't call people to believe in himself. Right here, he's calling people to believe in the Father. He's basically saying, hey, put your belief in him because when you believe in him, you believe in me. When you believe in me, you believe in him. They are equal in nature, in works, in power, in judgment. And because of all that, he deserves also our honor and praise just as the Father does. Now, many people think that they can honor God with belief without honoring the Son. But guys, when you do that, you make a God of your own making. God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He deserves all praise, all honor for who He is. And Jesus said this in John fifteen twenty three: he who hates me hates the Father. Those who refuse to honor the Son refuse to honor the Father. And they're actually self-deceived. These religious leaders thought they were worshiping God, but in fact, they weren't worshiping Him at all. They were worshiping a God of their own making. And this is why Acts 4.12 puts it like this. It says, there is salvation in no one else, that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Apart from Jesus, you cannot know the Father. You cannot worship the Father. You cannot serve the Father. Jesus is equal to the Father. And he deserves all our honor and all our praise. This is why Jesus says this in John 14:6. I am the way, the truth and the life. And there is no one who comes to the Father except through me. But listen to verse 7. He says, "If you've known me, you've known my Father." Also, and from now on, you know him and you've seen him. Do you know him? Because if you do not know the son, you do not know the father. And in that last day, instead of seeing him as a savior, you will see him with his mighty angels and fire. Do you know the son? Jesus said this in Matthew ten thirty three. whoever denies me before men... I will also deny them before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus, right now, has made himself available. He's available to all who will believe. And the call constantly goes out to those who will hear. The question this morning, just from this section right here, these five proofs that he is God, is are you listening? Are you hearing this? Will you respond? You know, it's a beautiful thing that we don't read, need to really fully understand the Trinity to enter into a life of service and knowing God. Now, some of you may know this, but I read this this week. He says, I read that deep within the core of the sun, the temperature is 27 million degrees. The pressure is 340 billion times that here on earth. And the sun core That insanely hot temperature, that unthinkable pressure, it combines to create nuclear reactions. In each reaction, there are four protons that fuse together to create one alpha particle, which is 0.7% less massive than the four protons. And the difference in mass is expelled in energy. And it takes a million years for that energy to to go from the core of the sun to the very edge of the sun where it's expelled as light and heat. Now, that's a really interesting fact, but guys, you don't need to know that to get a tan. (laughs) And in the same way, we don't have to have full understanding of the Trinity to know Him. Jesus, right here, has explained very clearly He is God. And in my little pea brain sometimes I struggle with how do I understand that. But what he calls us to do when it's clear in the text is to respond to the truth. Just as you respond to the truth of light and heat of the sun, respond to the truth of the glory of the sun. Do you know him? Because he claimed right here that he's equal with God. Do you believe it? That's the first thing we see. Jesus claimed to be equal with God. Second thing, Jesus claimed authority to raise the dead to life. Jesus claimed the authority to raise the dead to life. Jesus is both the the giver and the sustainer of life. Look at verses 25 through 30. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear His voice will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing of my own initiative as I hear... I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus here again says truly, truly for emphasis, and he says an hour is coming and now is, he's saying right here, pay attention, and what Jesus is doing, he's playing emphasis on his claims to be the one who's going to summon the dead to life. Now, the time has arrived. The now is here is in the present tense. But if you look back at verse 24, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life. That's present tense. And now you move over here. The now is is also in present tense. Verse 25, he says, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This phrasing in verse 25 is really interesting because what it does, it takes on a double meaning. It takes on a meaning both present and also future. If you understand the way verbs work in in the Greek, the present tense verb has a, a present meaning now, but it goes on into the future. And Jesus gives life both to the dead now, spiritually dead, but also in the future. There's going to be eternal life. His statement has both that present and future aspect. One day in the future, he's going to summon all the dead to judgment in the final day. But in the present, the spiritually dead, those who are breathing but don't know God, he offers them life. And he has the ability to give them life. You have the ability today to receive life, eternal life. So the reference to the dead here is to those who are spiritually dead without Christ, but also to to those who have already physically died and are in the grave. One commentator put it like this. He said, men don't come alive on their own. Dead men don't come alive by some religious motion or ceremony. They don't come alive by some ritual. They don't come alive through the cleverness of a teacher or by self-improvement. They come alive when the voice of Christ calls out to them and they respond the dead cannot hear but those who do hear are made alive ephesians 5:14 says awake sleeper arise from the dead and it says christ will shine on you again are you listening this morning do you hear his voice can you hear the voice of christ calling out if you hear his voice the, the, the emphasis here is respond Take life upon yourself, because if you don't take life now, one day you will face him, and you'll face him in judgment. And what Jesus is saying here is that spiritual life, eternal life, this life giving, it's it's begun. It's present tense. It means it's available now. Even before his own resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus began began that, that saving life. Do you remember in John chapter 4, he, he spoke to the adulterous woman. And in that section, she came to believe she got life. And she went out and she told her whole community and then many believed through her word. A little later on, he met the nobleman who, whose son was healed. And it says that the nobleman and his whole household believed they also gained eternal life. So God has given the son the authority, just as the father, to, to give eternal a spiritual life. Look at verse 26. It says, Just as the Father has life in Himself, so He gave the Son also to have life in Himself. The verb that introduces the word life is also present tense. It starts here, but it goes on into the future. So the idea is that Jesus now can provide life, eternal life, that will go now but will continue on into eternity. This is why Jesus said in John 10.10, The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come to give life, life abundantly. Jesus has the authority to give resurrected life and judgment. The Father gives the Son all authority to give life, but also He gave Him the authority to judge. Look at verses 27 and 28. He says, He gave Him the authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. I love the way Chuck Swindoll put this. He says, Jesus validated His qualification to be the judge of all humanity because He's both the Son of God who can give life and the Son of Man who has experienced life as a human yet without sin. Jesus is the most qualified of all to be the judge because he is God in the flesh and he's experienced life as you and I have experienced. He's experienced the hardship, the joys, the temptations that we experience. Who better to be the judge than him? This is why Paul says this in First Timothy 4.1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and of the dead. And so what happens here is one day we, we will give an account for our life. My prayer is that everyone here, it will be at the, the bema seat of Christ. If you know him, the bema seat is for believers only. It is a judgment, but it's a judgment for rewards. Your life will be weighed out. Some will be seen as wood, hay, stubble, and we burnt away. Others will be seen as gold and silver and precious stones, and it will remain. But if it's not at the bema seat, then it will be at the great white throne judgment. You don't want to be there. You want to be at the bema seat judgment. An hour is coming, he says, when the voice of Christ will ring out and He will empty the graves of everyone who's ever died. When he says tombs, will hear His voice in verse 28, it means that the dead are going to take a physical form, that means those who've been cremated. That means those that have been in the grave so long, they're just dust. God, because he's God, that can create something out of nothing. He's going to take that spirit that is in the eternal realm, and he's going to bind it with a physical form for judgment. And the same voice that wakes the spiritually dead in the now present, one day it's going to speak, and all will come to life. John MacArthur put it like this. He said, this is an astonishing power, mind-boggling power. How do you literally, in a moment, recreate every human being who has ever lived and join that recreated form suitable for heaven or hell with the spirit of the person already in the presence of God or out of his presence? So in verse 29, if you look at it, all in the tomb will come forth, and those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, and those who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. What Jesus is saying right here is that there's only two destinies for mankind. There's either life, which is eternal life, or there's judgment, which is eternal hell. By the statement in verse 29, there is no reincarnation. There are not levels of karma or levels of nirvana or whatever you want to say. There's one life to live and then the judgment. There's two resurrections a resurrection to life, and a resurrection to judgment. Taken by itself, though, if you look at verse 29, it appears to declare that eternal destiny is determined by our deeds. But I want you to understand that, I guess, the idea is, theoretically, if a person lived a perfect life, he could stand before God and be accounted righteous. But the problem is the Bible's very clear. In Romans chapter 3, it says all have fallen short of His glory. All have sinned. And because of that, no one can stand in his own righteousness. If you're going to stand before God based on what you've done and hope that God is somehow going to weigh out the good and the bad, give you a pass, if you will, you're going to be sorely mistaken. You will experience the resurrection to judgment. But if you will put your faith in Christ... If your trust is in His good deeds, in His righteous life, you will stand before God in the resurrection of life. This is why Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. That's what it means. The resurrection of life is peace with the Father. Why? Because we're standing in the Son's righteousness. We're credited His life to our account There is no judgment for those that know Christ. And then Jesus, he finishes his thought with verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, Jesus is always doing the will of the Father, always in perfect harmony, always in perfect unity. They're one being. Take notice, though. I want you to see the shift in perspective here. Up to this point, Jesus has always referred to Himself as the Son of Man, the Son of God. But right here in verse 30, look at it. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of Him who sent me. It's in the first person. Up to this point, He's been speaking in third person. Right here, He clarifies everything. He speaks in the first person. And he's just made six declarations that are crystal clear. He said, first, I am equal with God the Father. Second, I am the giver of life. Third, I am the final judge of all humanity. Fourth, I hold the destinies of every human being in my hands. Fifth, I will raise the dead. And sixth, everything that I do is by the will of my Father who is God. If any other person made that claim, people would say they're either evil or insane. But Jesus has made this claim very clear right here, and we have to confess, if you don't believe it, you have to take one of those other two stances. If you say it makes sense, and you must trust Him for who He claims to be. He truly is God the Son. You know, I was kind of going through the Internet, looking at different articles, and I came across an article with Nick Nolte, in GQ magazine at the end of last year. And they asked him a question, and I thought it was interesting. They said, when was the last time you cried? He said, today. He goes, I cry every day. He goes, I cry when I get out of bed because in my 70s, I hurt so much I can't help but cry. And he says, once my joints start moving and I figure out whether or not I'm going to have more pain or less pain, he says, I either get worse or better. And he says, but I cry all the time now at my age because... At my age, a lot of my friends start dying. And that will always bring on a good cry. He goes, last summer, he says it was screenwriter and director Paul Mazursky. He had internal organ failure. I mean, his wake, it was a classic. I saw faces I hadn't seen in years. Mel Brooks, Richard Dreyfuss, who I hadn't seen since we filmed Down and Out in Beverly Hills. It was a great wake. But then you can't help but think about your own funeral, And what that's going to be like. And I had the thought, you know what guys? Don't worry about your funeral. Worry about your resurrection. Is it going to be a resurrection to life? Or is it going to be a resurrection to judgment? My prayer is that it's a resurrection to life. Two things we've seen. Jesus claimed to be equal with God. Jesus claimed authority to raise the dead to life. And there's a third and final one here. Jesus claimed many witnesses who confirmed his identity as God. Jesus claimed many witnesses who confirmed his identity as God. Jesus is going to make a claim here that there are many other witnesses that support his claim that he's God. Five, to be exact. I'm going to take this in sections. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'm just going to take a little bit at a time and kind of explain it. Verses 31 and 32, it says, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. So the Lord said, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is not saying that his testimony is not true here. What he's saying here is that these leaders won't believe his testimony unless he has other things to support it. That's what he means by that statement. And then he goes into verse 32, and he starts talking about a, another who testifies to me, and I know that that testimony which he gives about me is true. He's talking about the Father. But the first one I want to take a look at is John the Baptist, because the Father, in verses 37 and 38, we're going to talk about him, so I'll bind that with that one. But in verses 33 through 35... The first witness we see is John the Baptist. Look at verse 33 through 35. It says, You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things, look at this, so that you may be saved. That is the heart of a Savior right there. These men want to kill Jesus. And right there he says, I'm sharing this with you guys so you can be saved. That's the heart of our Lord. Verse 35 He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And we know that John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. He was the announcer, the one who came. And John made three very strong statements about who Jesus was, all in chapter 1. In John chapter 1, verse 23, he says, he's a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Then he says, make straight the way of the Lord. In verse 29 in chapter 1, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 34 of chapter 1, he says, I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Three things he said about Jesus. He said, first, he's the Lord. Second, he is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And third, he says that he is the Son of God. Giving Jesus that title of Messiah, the the one who came that God had sent to take the very sins of mankind upon himself. And understand something about John the Baptist. He was the first prophet to be here for 400 years. And the same thing that happened to John the Baptist by the religious leaders happened to prophets of old. The leaders did not believe him, they didn't believe his testimony. But Jesus says something very important about John. Look at verse 35. He says, he was a lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his life. Because he wasn't the light. We know that Jesus is the light, The light, right? He's a lamp. And if you think about a lamp in those days, what it was, it, it basically had a base, it had a reflective piece here, and a candle, and it would reflect light out. John the Baptist reflected the light of Christ out. What a picture for us. You don't put a light under a bushel, do you? What do we do with it? We reflect the light of Christ. He's called him a lamp. And it's interesting, John the Baptist is still being used as a lamp because the very words that he spoke are in the Scriptures today. And many have come to Christ through John's word. Even John 3.16 was written by John the Baptist John the Baptist is still being used as a light. That was the first witness. The second witness is Jesus' works or his miracles. That's verse 36. He says, but the testimony I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given to me to accomplish the very work that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Now, John the Apostle, when he wrote this book, he put in eight different miracles for us to see that Jesus truly is God the Son. And when you think about the different things that we see, even Nicodemus stated, because of Jesus' miracles, that he knew he was from God. Nicodemus said this in John 3, 2, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And a little later, Jesus is going to speak to these same religious leaders. Listen to his words in John 10, 25. He says, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. The very miracles that Jesus did were a testimony that he truly is God the Son. So not only John the Baptist, not only the works or miracles, the third one we see here is God the Father himself. Look at verse 32 and then we'll jump down to 37 and 38. It says that there is another who testifies of me, and I know that that testimony which he gives about me is true. And the Father who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time or seen his form. And you do not have the word abiding in you, for you do not believe him, him whom he sent. So we know that God the Father had testified in an audible form of Jesus. We know at the transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved son. Listen to Him. We know when Jesus was baptized, there was a voice from heaven in Matthew 3.17. It says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. God the Father always testified about the Son, that He truly is God the Son. And not only do we see the Father, but we see the fourth one, which is God's holy word, the Scriptures, the Scriptures. Now look at verse 38 again. It says, you do not have his word abiding in you. But verse 39, it says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal light. It is these that testify of me. He's talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures were were a testimony. They were a witness of the coming Christ. And Jesus says that that they were a testimony of him, that, that they all point to Jesus. But verse 40 is very telling. Look at that verse. It says, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Ah, what a verse. What a verse. That one right there broke my heart. Jesus, God the Son, has just made all these statements that he truly is the one they've been waiting for. The scriptures that they were depending on were all pointing to him, yet they were unwilling to turn and believe. The Son deserves glory. That's what verses 41 through 44 says. But here's the one that that killed me. Moses is the last witness. Look at verses 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? These men were depending on the word of Moses, the first five books of Moses. And they basically felt that those, that, that that document, if you will, is what gave them life. But Jesus is saying the very words of Moses, that book that you have in your hand, it's going to be a testimony against you. And listen up. The very book you have in your lap, the very word you have on, on your iPad or on your phone, If you do not surrender to Christ, it will be a testimony against you in the last day. I want to kind of close with this idea. John 5.40 says, You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The heart of every section of John is driving people to this point of decision. The book is so clear, and particularly Jesus' own words here. You can almost hear him straining and saying, believe in me, turn to me, come to me. But they're unwilling. Why is your heart hard? Why are you unbelieving this morning? What holds you back from responding to the very truth that is written before you? The Scripture says two things. One, it says, is literally the God of this world, Satan. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians that he has blinded the minds and the eyes and the hearts of men. Satan does not want you to believe. And the other thing is the sin in your own heart of pride, an unwillingness to believe. But if you hear his voice this morning, if you hear the voice of Christ, believe. That's the word right here. Will you believe? close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the Word of God. I thank You for John's testimony, Lord, right here of Jesus' words for us to see. I thank You, Father, that Jesus was so clear that He's more than a mere man. He's not just a noble man. He truly is God the Son. And with that, Father, I pray that by Your Spirit, You will bring that truth home to us. We stand on firm ground, the very words of Jesus, the very witnesses that testify to who He is. May He receive all glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Could I please have you stand?